Nous sommes prêts? We're ready? Alors, alors. Alors, OK. Super cool. Chouette. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. I'm back, baby. Back in vax, as they're saying. Vax and relax. And tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. I never left. <laughs> I went nowhere. I'm just here. You've been in the podcasting chair. Guys, you know how they sell gamer chairs and they sell office chairs? What would a podcasting chair look like if Aaron or Herman Miller were to make a chair perfect for podcasting from? Well, it would be silent. It wouldn't squeak as you moved around. I'm actually in like a folding chair right now. That's the only thing that fits in this closet. So I would I would really like that. Yeah, I'd about to say it, it has to be built into a closet. It's basically a closet. You know, like with those four poster beds, it's like a four poster <laughs> chair with like a microphone and a built in door. Oh, I love that. Right. Our Jew of the Week is Devin Gordon, author of So Many Ways to Lose, the amazing true story of the New York Mets the best worst team in sports. And the Gentile of the Week is Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of How to Raise an Adult and also her latest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Stephanie Butnick, back from vacation. I think you guys did great without me last week. Aw. I was really proud. It took me a while to listen. I thought you guys sounded nice and smart. I did get one DM from someone being like, Oh, they've been talking about being men for like 10 minutes now. But other than that, people seem to really like it. 10 whole minutes. That's right. Being men. <laughs> I do have to say that when I started to hear the like Britney Spears as Philip Roth comparison, I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I would not let this fly if I were in the room. And then I was listening. And I was like, you're kind of right about this. Stephanie was like, I leave for one day. But my, my defense of, of Brit is that she didn't really have agency. The sex hypersexualization of her as a 16 year old. Well, you know, we got a voicemail about this. We had a very thoughtful voicemail. But spin this out. What were you What were you thinking? We'll see how you and the listeners' minds synced up. Basically, like, she wasn't like, I'm 16 and sexy. She was, like, put into this machine of pop music record company. Like, that's the whole thing, This the documentary. I mean, that's why it's all so sad, because she actually never had control. All she wanted was control. It's just like she was manipulated by the record company to be really, really sexy. I don't think she was like, wait, why don't I wear a schoolgirl outfit and, like, walk with, like, the shirt tied up? But so I think that Philip Roth had more agency. No, hold on. It's actually very similar stories. You know, a little known fact that I learned from the new biography, but Philip Roth is also manipulated by his agent at a very young age. He was made to write that liver fucking scene in Portnoy's complaint. He was hypersexualized as a young man is what I'm saying. <laughs> Here's the irony. The irony is that Leah Leibowitz has a much higher regard for Britney Spears and her art than he does for Philip Roth and his. Is that not fair to say? It's true. It's true. Oh my God. By leaps and bounds. Are you kidding me? One of them is an actual important American artist that will prevail. <laughs> an icon. Also, by the way, I'm sorry, but Britney could actually win the Nobel Prize, which, sorry, Phil, never did. She should. I mean, it's the least we owe it to her. For peace, for literature. For everything. <laughs> for everything. For swagger. For swagger. So I went away. I got my vaccines and Ben and I went to Florida to visit my parents, visit my grandparents, people I have not seen in way too long. It was so exciting to go on an airplane. Remember we were on book tour and we'd go on an airplane like every other day and I'd be like, okay, let me get to like LaGuardia and get my app out. Leo would dove in at the gate and people would look at him weird. And like Josh, would, we would be like, are we going to be late? It was like the olden times when people got dressed up for flying. I felt like I, <laughs> it was such an experience. I was like, here is my boarding pass, sir. It was so exciting. The flight attendants were in retro outfits. Like the women yeah. were looking as if they were on, you know, Delta 1953. And Sinatra <laughs> singing, come fly with me, come fly. I know people have been, have, have who work, have had to fly this whole time, but like everyone was like nice kind of, 
there wasn't that much shoving. Everyone was sort of like appreciative of this experience. Was it crowded? Yeah, it was pretty crowded. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Everyone was like, please, God, let us survive this. The best part I completely forgot about flying is that you just sit down and put a movie on on the screen in front of you. And so I just got to watch movies the whole time. And on the way back, I watched An American Pickle, which is the Seth Rogen movie. Right. Is that good? So it was based on the Simon Rich short story in The New Yorker where a guy gets pickle brined, an immigrant to this country, a Jewish immigrant, is working at a pickle factory, falls into the vat, gets brined, and 100 years later comes out to like hipster Brooklyn and connects with his great-grandson. But the movie kind of got lost in all of his drama. He like went on Mark Maron. Remember, he's, I don't even remember when this was. It was like months ago. He said some Israel things. Yeah. Some Israel things. Everyone was like, oh, no. And the movie's pretty good. Yeah. See, I didn't even know the movie had dropped yet. To the surprise of no one, I, uh, I, I despised it. Liel, what's up with you? I have gone nowhere. I have not gotten up from this chair, I feel like, in weeks. It's wonderful. You are one with the chair. No travel plans, no aspirations. I'm completely at peace. One important thing, of course, is you're vaccinated. Stephanie's vaccinated. I just had my second shot. Ooh. Should we get together? I think we should get together at Casa Fredman Ader, which is sort of between all of us in Westchester County, and record a show in person and see what ha- see how see if the magic is still there. What if we like don't like recognize like what if we don't like each other? <laughs> Liel, when, when did you become six foot five? In my mind, you'd shrunk down to five eleven. Liel, is that you? Like no, no I'm 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 Stephanie. <laughs> You don't remember? It is funny, though, because we have some new staffers at Tablet, and the one thing you don't get from Zoom is how tall people are. It's not that important. I think it's probably a good leveling, democratizing factor. It turns out that two of our Tablet fellows, Nate and Seth, are both six foot four or five. And they never told us. And you would never know. And I would not say their personalities are that tall. I'd say their personalities are six one, six two max. <laughs> and tall people, I've, I've said this before, then I get angry mail from, you know, Jewish mothers with tall sons who were bullied at Ramah for being too tall. I know I'm stepping into that lion's den to go Hebrew Bible on you. That never happened. Do it. Go there. Yeah, Liel's own, he's like, it's all good. I'm sorry. We live an effortless, charmed life. You can find your betrothed in the airport in the last scene of your movie. You can see over the crowds to the gate. People hate sitting behind you at movies. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, I really, when I heard that, that Nate and Seth were six to five, as ever, my reaction was like, isn't that a bit much? <laughs> six, one <laughs> or two, fine. But six, five, what are you trying to prove, sir? Now you're just boasting. It's just de trop. You didn't need that, that last two inches. What purpose do they serve? That's right. That's the way I feel. But speaking of puissance and power, it is time to name the winner of the, the Jewish name of the century bracket. Boom. I don't want this to come to an end. You were anti-Jewish name of the year at the beginning, but then you hopped on the bandwagon. You're in the Mummer's Day Parade to the end, all the way down Broad Street. Guys, I think we knew from the beginning that really this was all throat clearing and prefatory remarks and overtures to the crowning, the coronation of Trudy Hope Schlamowitz as the best named Jew, certainly in America. Josh, can we say that we've tried to find her and she, what do you feel like we can say? And she doesn't get back to us? What I would say is that Sarah and I have done all the things that we agreed weren't creepy in order to reach out to her. We've both reached out via Facebook, via LinkedIn. Sarah has a LinkedIn pro account that lets you really message people. I didn't call her workplace because that would be creepy. I didn't call her children because that would be creepy. I didn't call... Because of the restraining order. Yeah, like I don't need another one of those. <laughs> but suffice it to say that Josh and Sarah have done their best, short of creepiness, to letting Trudy Hope Slomowitz know that we think she has a beautiful name. We love everything about it. We love its trudiness. We love its hopefulness. We love its schlaminess. Shlomowitziness. Yeah. If any of you knows her, please get the word to her. We have a prize. 
that we would like to give her. I will actually go to California and give it to her in person. Mazels to her. Congratulations to all the runners up. Remember, just, just competing makes you a winner. The prize is Josh Cross. Trudy Hope <laughs> Shlomowitz, you win producer Josh Cross. A lifetime of calls from us telling you we like your name. Calls to say, excuse me, are you Jewish? Excuse me, are you Trudy Hope? News of the Jews. Liel Leibowitz, as our Israel correspondent, will you take us to Haifa and let us know what's going on there? I will take you to Haifa. I will let you know what the New York Times says is going on there, but I have to preface it and say, I have my suspicions. I have my doubts. Here's why. The New York Times reports, groups of wild boars have become an unavoidable (laughs) presence in Haifa. And it has a photo, by the way, of a family of wild boars crossing a residential street. But however, if there's one thing that I know about wild boars is that they are nocturnal animals. If there's one thing that I know about Haifa is that I don't think anyone in Haifa has ever been out of the house after 6.30 p.m. because it's not that kind of town. The town by five, it kind of like begins to shut down. By six, it's like complete lockdown. By 6.30, it's the walking dead. How do you even know if there are wild boars in the streets? No one has ever seen them. <laughs> but you know, I know Haifa well and I've met a lot of boars from Haifa. It's a kind of a boring, oh. boring town. Haifa is like, you know, Haifa is kind of like the Canada of Israel. Like, it's so nice. You want to love it. It's up there in the north. And yet every time you go there, it's like, it's so boring here. Why am I here? Like, there's America right downstairs. It's like a much better party. <laughs> Can I just read you this? I've never liked anything more than I enjoyed this article. I think it came at like a good time in the pandemic for us to be like, mm-hmm. wild boar. So let me just read to you. The wild pigs of Haifa might not fly, but they seem to do almost everything else. The boars snooze in people's paddling pools. They snuffle across the lawns, which I didn't know was a word, but is a perfect word for what boars do. They kick residents' soccer balls and play with their dogs. They saunter down the sidewalks and sleep in the streets. Some eat from the hands of humans, and they all eat from the trash. They have formed a political party and are now the fourth largest political movement in Israel. Yeah, they're basically running Knesset now. They sound lovely. I mean, they eat from your hands. They play with your dogs. They sometimes maul you in the street, but, like, who cares? They sound lovely. By the way, it's only a matter of time before they take after us and, like, literally break up to, like, six factions of boars that would have nothing to do with one another. It's like, but uh, the boars across the street, very bad boars. But the boars have been very divisive because half the people are like, this is amazing. Nature is healing, etc. And then everyone else is like, no, these are like, they're eating my grass. They're going through my trash cans. And like someone got bit in the leg and a boar made off with a schoolgirl's pink school bag. You're like, I'm sorry. A boar descended from the sky and stole an infant out of a pram. (laughs) Took off with it. Someone says they are controlling the streets now. It's a very crazy situation. (laughs) And you're like, it's the most Israeli drama of all. This is my favorite quote, though. It's a secret garden, said Rona Shahar, a painter and Haifa resident. And there is a magical side to it. Aren't there just like a lot? There's like a a lot of coexistence in Haifa. Like you have a, a very mixed population. And now the boars. You know how we said Israel will have a working government when pigs fly? So God God was like, hold, hold my beer. Here you go. <laughs> I wish we could all in Israel learn to live like they live in Haifa, said Edna Gorney, a poet, ecologist, and lecturer at the University of Haifa. It's an example of coexistence, not only between Arabs and Jews, but also between humans and wildlife. I have to say, these are lovely photos. I mean, the people and the boars truly seem to be coexisting. 
Isn't Haifa where the French move also? The French go to Natania. Natania. Disco, disco. That's where we went on birthright because we couldn't, there were no hotels in Tel Aviv, so we went to Natania. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tel Aviv is, is crawling with wild Instagram influencers. They, yeah, you have to like carry your stick at night like these people. <laughs> your selfie stick and wave it at them. I just, okay, because someone, there's a quote, and I don't understand the conversion, the metric conversion. My husband came running back home because he ran into a 150 kilogram female boar. Liel, can you translate that for me? That's like, what, like 500 pounds, right? 330. <laughs> wow. That's big ass boar. That's that's a that's a me boar. Yeah, they can top 300 pounds and the mayor, oh. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of like municipal drama. Boris can't kick them away and, and can't eat them. We didn't talk about the most Israeli part of this story. What's that, Stephanie Butnick? In the meantime, amateurs have attempted their own solutions. One group tried to build an app that could deter <laughs> boars with subsonic <laughs> sound waves. <laughs> they were like, eh, let me make an app. Eh, eh, <laughs> how we deal with the boys. Startup Nation, we do the... That's amazing. I love it so much. It's never boring in Israel. Oh my God. Sorry. Kick me out of this again. <laughs> Speaking of municipal drama, this from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has long prided himself on his strong relationship with the Jewish community, a relationship he dates to his father's terms as governor. But that love for the Jewish community apparently does not extend to the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. In a story about Cuomo's political career, the Times Magazine reported Cuomo's frustration with a campaign appearance at a Sukkot event during his run for attorney general in 2006. These people in their fucking tree houses, Cuomo said to his team, according to the Times. This is the best. A spokesman denied the comment. Quote, his two sisters married Jewish men and he has the highest respect for Jewish traditions, the spokesman said. Okay, first of all, they're not tree houses, you dumbass. I mean, they there's actually Talmud on this. They can be, right? They can be tree houses, but they generally aren't tree houses. First of all, second of all, saying that you couldn't possibly have said it because your two sisters married Jewish men. I'm sorry, you cannot. That is worse than my best friends are Jewish. Like as a man with sisters, as as a man with Jewish sisters, like what? I have Jewish nieces and nephews whom I don't talk to. So I couldn't possibly have insulted sukkahs in 2006, says Andrew Cuomo. Can I just say, this is a little funny. It's a lot funny. These people and their fucking tree houses. <laughs> it's so specific. And you're not like, who could he be talking about? <laughs> I kind of want to write a book with that just to have that title now. This is like Mel Gibson, like in the specificity of its insults, right? What were his insults when he, when the... Oven dodgers, right? Oven, <laughs> that's right. Who do you call an oven dodger? Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder was an oven dodger. And oh. you thought, wow, that's that's not just like Heeb or, you know, Sheeny. That's specific oven dodger. Well, he listened to that episode and he's like, I hear you on Heeb. This is a deep cut, you're saying. This is like saying those shitheads in their Shmini Atzeret. Right, like saying they're fucking treehouses like he's been the thing is he's been thinking on that one he's been lying awake at night muttering to himself about the Jews goddamn Jews and their treehouses and their their palm front they're shaking things with the fucking lemons and the treehouses I mean he's really he's really angry that's anger I just like that this was from 2006 <laughs> some serious reporting like a real deep cut a really 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 deep cut speaking of deep cuts the world lost a Jew this week one Bernard Yehoshua Avitai Amichai Madoff, Bernie Madoff, went to meet the creator this week. He died at 82. Went to meet the great accountant in the sky. I don't think that's where he's going, guys. To the SEC Shalmala. Yeah, that's right. He had been ailing for some time. He had said a couple years back that he was terminally ill, asked for compassionate release, didn't get it. The only thing I have to say is he will forever be the person who prompted more questions than any other human being at book events for the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Everyone wanted to know when you write the history of Jews in one volume, 
do you include, I think, the most loathed Jew in the world right now? Infamous, notorious. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a specific loathing within the Jewish community, and he sparked such animosity. Like, what he did was so bad, but also, like, that he targeted— So, of course, Bernie Madoff, who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in financial history and built a lot of Jewish people, particularly, he preyed on these, like, Jewish communities. He— Hadassah, Elie Wiesel, like... The Mets. Who cares about Hadassah? The New York Mets. Really just really, really specifically damaging to the Jewish community. But, you know, in the book, we have a whole page called Shonda. It's a big-ass picture of him because he's part of this really, really uncomfortable legacy for Jews, right? Because he used his Jewishness to ingratiate himself with potential investors, right, in his scam Ponzi scheme. And so when that all came out in 2008, it was just like, really a searing thing for the Jewish community. Of course, there are people who were like, who would have ever invested with him? And you're like, Ellie freaking Wiesel did. Like what he did was so nefarious almost because he preyed on his own. And I think that's what it really, that's the chord it struck with a lot of people, which was just like a grotesqueness to what he did, which was take the money of Hadassah, what like brand, I mean, he just really preyed on the sort of like lawnsmanness of Jews, right? Because we were like, oh, he he won't screw us over. He's he's one of us. I don't think we've really reckoned with that though. I, I honestly, as a Jewish community. Do you think now that he's gone, it's time to commemorate him, like, you know, you name bridges after people who passed. Should we basically just change the name of a Ponzi scheme to a Madoff scheme? Because Ponzi, he might have been the OG of this business, but he wasn't the biggest. Like, his scheme was a pretty small scheme. With small potatoes. Do you get to keep the name? If someone, like, outdoes you, like, is it still a Ponzi scheme? I think that's right. Well, in our book, there's a whole Jews and banking spread, and there's it's sort of, like, laid out like Monopoly, and then there's sort of, like, a go-to-jail card, and it says, like the Ivy League, Jews didn't create it. They really perfected it, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this was, Leal, I'm sort of with you there. I think we should call it a Madoff scheme. But here's, here's my question. In all of the coverage of him, it always says he perpetrated the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Whom did he take that crown from? Like, who was the greatest Ponzi schemer in history until Madoff? And will that person now be forgotten? Was it Shloimi Yankovitz in Yonkers? Was it Giuseppe Marozzi Ponzi? Was it uh, who all other Ponzi schemers have lost their cred in the face of his massive Madoff scheming? There could only be one. It's like Highlander. But no, no, I really don't think we've had the real Jewish, like there hasn't been the great article. Well, Stephanie, what is what is the real Jewish reckoning? I mean, to me, this was, there was nothing shocking about this. There were bad Jews just as there are bad everyone's. Of and course, people always of course. Prey on, people always use their social networks to prey on. I mean, it is a little shocking. To me, actually, Here's my, my dirty secret. While obviously I regret that anyone loses money to unscrupulous criminals, this was really sad and there was a true human cost to this. Part of me also felt like it sort of reminded the world, not that anti-Semites are corrigible, not that they'll change their mind, but anyone who thinks that we're especially shrewd with money or that we have these great business minds or whatever, now only has to look at all of the very, very smart credentialed Jews who handed over their money to this criminal. Hey, hey, anti-Semites, you think we're good with money? Yeah, like tens of thousands of us invested with a guy who promised perpetual 90% return on investment throughout decades. We may be the worst people with money in the world. Right. It's a beautiful nuance that I don't think anti-Semites are going to get because of like the greedy money-grubbing <laughs> image of Bernie Madoff, who himself is like a grotesque caricature. So I think that it does a little bit more harm than than good. Yeah. There's also a scapegoat aspect to all of this where now, oh, Madoff's the bad person. There's so many corrupt people. Look, there's of so course. many people who shave on their taxes. But can you imagine bilking 
Ellie Wiesel. Bill King, Ellie Wiesel, and the New York Mets, you know, two two groups that have suffered a lot. Haven't they suffered enough? No, I think this is weird and it's it's the end of a chapter, but like, I think that for a lot of people, this isn't the, like, I don't know. This is just a weird, ugh, I don't know. Friends, do not fall victim to Madoff schemes. Invest in, in traditional things. Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So, friends, opening day for baseball, my beloved pastime, was just a few weeks ago, which means that these days I spend a few hours every day engaging in my favorite hobby, which is fuming about how freaking bad the New York Mets are. So, Stephanie, our resident sports correspondent and expert, producer Josh Cross, and myself reached out to Devin Gordon, whose new book is all about how the Mets have unleashed a cycle of suffering and redemption and rancor and heartbreak, much like, you know, those other long-suffering people, the Jews. Have a listen. Our next guest is the author of an astonishing book. It's about a small, stiff-necked people who wander around in the wilderness for about 40 years or so who face great tragedies throughout time, but also have a few moments of real divine inspiration. I'm talking, of course, about the New York Mets. The book is So Many Ways to Lose, the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best, worst team in sports. The author is Devin Gordon. Hello. Thank you for having me. I can't believe I've never thought of it in that regard. As a lifelong Jew, I can't believe that never occurred to me. You are right. It's quite a metaphor, isn't it? So as one Jew to another, I want you to start by treating me to a bit of analysis. So I was born in Israel. I get here, I'm, I'm 24 years old, and I've never seen a game in my life. And someone says, oh, you know, go see baseball. You'd like it. And then I go see a game and I love it. And I ask, well, what should my team be? Who should I like? And through some kind of metaphysical world historical force that I can't truly explain, I gravitate to the Mets. And the question I'd like you to answer for me as I lay down on my couch is, why? <laughs> why did you do this? I mean, that's why? Basically, why did I do it's, it? It's the fundamental question of my book, basically, is why I did know. I do this to myself? <laughs> the answer is the Mets do sort of choose you more than you choose them. So you may have thought that there was some volition happening there. 
but in some sort of time is circular kind of theory, all the things that made you ultimately decide to go with the Mets were already there inside of you all the way back as a boy in Israel, which is really amazing that we stretched that far. So let's look at these things and that let's look at this team. And it's really kind of metaphysical, existential, world historical capacity for joy and pain and all the things that make, you know, religion and baseball great. You're not saying this is the worst team in sports. You're saying that this is a team that possesses some kind of celestial, spiritual capacity to lose and break your heart in very special ways. Tell us about the Mets. One of the key lines in the book is that there is a difference between being bad and being gifted at losing. The Mets are gifted at losing. (laughs) We are not, contrary to most people's opinions and sort of instincts and lack of nuanced understanding, we are not a bad team. We have gone to the playoffs far too often. We've won a couple world championships. We also have too many superstars and too many solid-ish quality seasons. We're in the pennant race only to bungle it somehow. We're not the Detroit Lions. We're not the Seattle Mariners. We're not just your typical lose with no style, no flair, no break. We are about the rising and the falling. And when we lose, I'm not just talking about losing 120 games. I'm talking about losing an NLCS because you walked in a winning run, right? I'm talking about losing a trip to the World Series because your best hitter watched three strikes go past him with a winning run on second base. That's unique. Every team has like a tragic loss. Any team that's won anything has probably had some kind of defeat where somebody hit a home run and it really hurt. We go way, way, way beyond that. It's never the case where you have one of those myths or a hilarious story and then you look closer at it and it kind of unravels. You know, you're like, ah, actually, it wasn't like that. With the Mets, the opposite happens. You look at it and you're like, oh my God, it got even worse. It just keeps getting more and more and more detailed. It's kind of bottomless. And that's that's a very special phenomenon about us. And I wanted to write about that. Give us one of those epic stories. What is your favorite Mets collapse? The kind that you just, at the end, look up to the heavens and say, Really, God, really? Because it has to be you. It can't be man. It has to be Lord. Game seven of the 2006 National League Championship Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, the Yankees of the Ozarks, the born-again Yankees. I despise the Cardinals with every fiber of my being. And we had that series won. I knew, I was sure, because of the greatest postseason catch I've ever seen. And I witnessed live. I was actually at game seven. And it was Andy Chavez's catch, robbing a home run from Scott Rowland, doubling off Jim Edmonds at first base, ending the inning, saving the season. And in that moment, I was sure we were going to win the World Series. That is the only time in my life, including 1986, when I felt that idea pop into my head. God wants us to win. And as you know, every person who has ever had the thought, God wants us to win, you know what they all have in common? They're all wrong. Every one of them. And that should have been my first clue that something terrible was going to happen. And and sure enough, 63 minutes later, after the Cardinals hit a two-run home run and broke my heart, we got the bases loaded. We were going to pull off another miraculous rally. This was fate. It was supposed to be this way. And then our best hitter, the guy we had literally signed because of his postseason grandeur and excellence, struck out on three pitches without swinging the bat. That's pretty messy, <laughs> right? Like, that's pretty messy. It started one of the great free falls in professional sports history. He struck out, and then the franchise crumbled like it was something in a disaster movie. And then we hired him again. Then we hired him 13 years later to manage the team. And before he manages a game, 
he gets exposed as the mastermind of the greatest cheating scandal in baseball since the 1990 Black Sox. Now, Devin, I hear the pain in your voice. It is evident. But there's kind of a joy, too. A little joy. That's the thing. I, I think I hear something else which, which is present in me. It's, it's this notion of, look, those of us who spend that much time watching and following sports do so because we have some inkling that these games are about something bigger than just watching a few athletes, right? That they're about some kind of, of human drama unfurling, about some kind of pursuit of, of higher meaning. And when you see drama on this scale, when you see ineptitude of this magnitude, you feel a little bit vindicated, right? It's about life. The human condition is to lose. Life is just a series of tiny little L's, right? And only one team gets to win at the very end. The rest of us are losers. In baseball, that means that, you know, something what, like 80, 95% of the league is made up of losers. So if we're all in this condition, what kind of loser would you rather be? Would you rather be the Detroit Lions? Would you rather have that experience of endless losing? Or would you rather have the Mets experience where this is delightfully fun and sometimes agonizingly painful, but it's always interesting. There's always a good reason to tune in. Like the Mets so far this year have been so messy. There's rain. No, there's snow. No. We're going to have a snow out tomorrow in Chicago, by the way. It looks like it's going to snow tomorrow. It's incredible. The rest (laughs) of the league has played like 20 games and we've played seven. It's crazy. Which is really kind of a different way of saying, you know, we're off to such a Jewish start, right? There, there is something. I don't think I'm just projecting here my own Mishigas, but there's something really uniquely Jewish. Show me another people who behaves in this quite way. I will say, Devin, we say everything is Jewish on this podcast, but I think Liel is actually right, that this might be the most Jewish. This time he really is onto something. I mean, look, it's no accident the author of this book was Jewish. I think, I think also what you're touching on is sort of our emotional metabolism of it and the way we process it and our willingness to see the story or the narrative and the joys of the ups and the downs and the novelties of the way it plays itself out. Because what is so great about this gift that we have is its ability to surprise, right? Like that's basically the title of the book is this season has given me new ways to lose. I mean, it already has. I mean, we celebrated during spring training, pretend celebrated winning the World Series. Like we (laughs) drilled recording the last out of the World Series and celebrating it. Like, you know, I get it. It's like some sort of sports visualization exercise. But like whoever planned that drill is new to the Mets and also needs to read my book because there is one way or another, we are going to be seeing that footage in October. That is going to haunt us. I just know it. Every team other than one is not going to win the World Series this year, but only the Mets are going to have footage of us in spring training celebrating the World Series we didn't win. Well, it's sort of like Moses. He got to see the promised land but he knew he was never going. So like, this is actually quite biblical. But see, for me, it's more like the Mel Brooks version where (laughs) Moses comes back and he drops the tablet and he's like, "Uh, okay, 10. We've only got one tablet here. I mean, I don't, and it's like, uh, you know, wobbling. And everybody thinks that Steve Cohen, the richest Jew in America. Did I just make that up? Sounds right. We're just going to make it up for the purposes of this podcast. Takes over the team from Fred Wilpon, another very wealthy Jew. Big Jew. And everybody's like, This is amazing. He's going to save us. Everything's going to be fine. This guy's got so much money. He's so smart. He's, I'm like, no, it's just going to be a different flavor or breed or bouquet of losing. But the amazing thing is, I mean, and this is something that I really sort of learned from your book is that there was a Mets way of losing before there were the Mets. 
I mean, you're right. Like Casey Stengel was a Metsy guy before there were the Mets. And then he walks right in to this position, falls asleep during games. And, and it's basically like all the DNA was right there, right? Yeah. I mean, if the purpose of the book was to just sort of trace why this happened, trace what I'm responding to as this sort of genetic connection I have to my team, where they almost feel like a mental projection of me onto a baseball field. If you were going to project me onto a baseball field, it would look something like the Mets, right? It'd be a worse version. Where does this come from? Like, why did this happen? And I always knew about Casey Stengel and I always had this sort of operating theory that it traced back to Casey Stengel, the sort of stand-up comic in a manager's uniform vibe that maybe explained why we seem to have so many stand-up comics rooting for our team. Not only was he the architect and author of How We Sound, but he was the first victim of Metsiness, which is to say he was the most popular man in baseball and an iconic Hall of Fame manager who had won five World Series in a row. No one's ever done that since managed Mickey Mantle, managed Joe DiMaggio, was the Yankee manager of all managers and retired, got talked out of retirement in order to take the Mets job, basically as sort of like a gold watch retirement farewell tour where he'd come wake up from his nap, doff his cap, crack a few jokes, make fun of the team, and then be on his way. And it turns out the team is so enjoyably bad that no one even remembers his Yankee career. We took Casey Stengel and turned him into a Met. And that's really, really hard to do. It's like Bloom and Bialystok. We actually made Springtime for Hitler a hit. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Casey Stengel will forever be remembered for that. Except if Bloom and Bialystok were coming off of making Hamilton. All right. <laughs> and then had this hit. Spring training for Hitler. Spring training for Hitler. And everybody's like, <laughs> nobody remembers Hamilton. And <laughs> it's all spring training for Hitler for Casey's thing. That's spring training for Hitler. Is a, that should have called my 62 chapter. That's kind of what it was like. <laughs> okay, Devin Gordon, let's get real. You went to Duke. I went to Duke. You were editor-in-chief of the Chronicle, right? I was. Oh, my God, yeah. This is, I think, the most important question you'll ever get about this book. Mets fandom and like Duke basketball fandom. Kind of incompatible. Diametrically opposed. How do you square these two? You are a human divided. Yes. I mean, it's, look, first of all, let's just acknowledge the core hypocrisy. <laughs> I'm not going to try to give you a multi-layered argument that wiggles my way out of this. It's indefensible on some level. I even went to Duke because I love the basketball team. Like, it's not like I can even be like, wow, they had a great English program or I really like the newspaper. No, it was because I like Duke basketball. That's one of the big reasons why I went there. I don't really have much of a defense for it, except that I, I came much later to Duke basketball, much later to basketball as a sport. So maybe it was just, I needed something like, you know, it was pretty despairing for the Mets when I went to Duke, but I also feel like it's helpful because it gives me an insight into what Yankee fans are like. And I like almost having that insight because it does make it easier for me to make fun of them. I feel like I'm able to knife them a little bit deeper because I do understand their insecurities. I understand their egotism <laughs> only because I have this like Duke understanding of like just detestable hegemony. I agree that we are the most disdained, but <laughs> Ohio State fans hate Michigan. Mich you know, like yeah, there's, there's like, there's, yeah, there's like hatreds yeah. that, that boil just as deep. And also we're just not nearly as dominant. The Yankees kind of stand alone and they lord it over for everyone. They're such assholes and they are unparalleled. They sort of delight in it. I do think that if I'm to track my like discomfort with like the Duke thing, and I was a fencer at Duke. I was a Duke athlete on a really super important team if we're talking about fandoms. But I do think that I've always been really uncomfortable with like everyone hates Duke. But I think it's because I grew up with a Mets and Knicks family. Yeah. Where like there was something snobby about it. I actually apologize 
I don't know about you, but when I tell people I went to Duke, I'm like, I'm sorry. Well, I say like, but I'm not an asshole. Uh, or something like that. We we instinctively know. Yeah. You're self-hating Dukes. Is We're self-hating <laughs> Dukes. Exactly. Except that I don't know that most Dukes are self-hating. I think you and I are. Because of the Mets. Yeah. And it's the Mets thing that, that makes us understand that it is something that we should be a little bit chagrined about. So it's pretty clear that being a Mets fan like I am, the, there's a massive difference between that and being a Yankees fan or a Duke fan or a Cowboys fan or one of these other fandoms that everyone else hates. What is it about the Mets and the chaos that happens around them that makes us love them so much? If you're a Yankee fan, the purpose of the Yankees is to win. That's what they were put on earth to do. That is the functional purpose of their existence. And so it is baked into their DNA and go figure that's what they go out and do. And when they don't do it, it is considered a failure. The Mets were not put on this earth to win games. Their existence is predicated. Our existence as fans rooting for them is predicated on something else, which is just the crazy enjoyment and novelty and weirdness of what's happening with this team. And so if that's what we've always loved about them, it's going to be hard to strip out no matter how hard we try. It's always going to be there on some level, just in the same way as for Yankee fans, this furious anger over losing is never going to go away. I mean, 2019, when the Mets went, I think, 83 and 79, and we finished in third place, was one of my favorite baseball seasons ever. It was one of my favorite Mets teams ever. It was so much fun. Like Pete Alonso was hitting home runs all over the place as a rookie. Jacob deGrom was turning into Tom Seaver 2.0. We were roaring back to win games. We were collapsing to lose games at the worst moments. There were chairs being thrown in the clubhouse. Reporters were getting screamed at. Players were picking fights with people. Yoenis Cespedes was getting charged by a wild boar. I was about to say. <laughs> it was, I almost left that out. It was amazing. It was such a fantastically delightful season. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I remember with my friends, like that game when we lost and blew a six-run lead in the ninth to the Washington Nationals that effectively ended the season. Like that was the day we had basically gotten back into it and then slammed the door shut on ourselves. But in the weeks after that, my buddies and I would joke about getting our playoff and World Series rotation set, even though the season was over. We knew the season was over. We had blown it. But like there was this sort of delusional joy we were taking in just refusing to acknowledge the reality <laughs> that we weren't going to win. We were mathematically still in it. And God help us, we were still good. As long as we were still in it, we still believed we were going to win the World Series. And we knew that it was a joke. But we would talk about rainouts and be like... How's Thor going to pitch game three? If it like we were, just, we knew it was ridiculous. And we were, we would be like on a text thread with Philly fans who had the same record as us and had basically just given up. They had surrendered. They couldn't understand what we were doing. They didn't get the joke. They didn't get the joy. And I'm just like, yeah, I would rather be us right now because our season is still fun and you're moving on to 2020 and look how that turned out. That is probably the most Jewish thing you've said in our entire conversation. So so let me conclude our conversation by asking you this, Rabbi. <laughs> Someone once asked Hillel the Elder to kind of explain or sum down the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And he famously said, what is hateful to you, don't do unto others. If I asked you to sum the entire Torah of Metziness, of Metz fandom, of Metz Mishigas, while standing on one foot, what is the one essence, the one guide to life, the one insight, the one bit of wisdom that we take from following the Mets that applies pretty much anywhere else? Is it what you just said, this point that as long as you have faith, life is always more fun? That's pretty good. I mean, I was going to go somewhere more bleak. I like yours. Can I take your, because mine, <laughs> what keeps, what kept going was almost an incomplete sentence with a dot, dot, dot after it was like. Yours was park closer to the entrance because you're going to want to leave. I kept thinking you have no idea. 
that's kind of what it is to be a Mets fan. You have no idea, dot, dot, dot. And as long as you keep that in mind and surrender to it, you're going to have a great time. This is going to be a great time. And even the things that seem like brutal, horrific catastrophe, first of all, it's a baseball game. So there is always that. And second, like, it's just a better story. You know, it's just more fun to talk about rather than being like, hey, remember that time in 1998 when Mariano Rivera struck out those guys again and we won? That was awesome. You know, like, I mean, sure, but it's not a very good story. As a wise pitcher once said, or at least made popular, you gotta believe. Devin Gordon, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for bringing out reserves of Jewishness I never knew I had. This was really cathartic for me. Everybody's coming crew it is time for some pod biz tonight may 16th i will be moderating a zoom conversation with rabbi sharon browse and shy held about each of their new books that's at 6 p.m eastern and the final event in my unpacking the book series with the jewish book council and the jewish museum this one's on zoom so no matter where you are i hope you can make it and tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox. Just one voicemail that we want to play this week from a listener who had some thoughts from me and Liel on our Man Cave episode last week. Hi, Mark and Liel. First of all, any Britney scholar worth their salt knows that Baby One More Time was her breakout song, not Oops, I Did It Again, but I'll let that slide. Second, um, I did want to take issue with the way you compared her with Philip Roth because Roth had something Britney will never have, which is agency. And to insinuate that the conversation and the facts around her conservatorship are somehow bull or kind of an exaggeration is an insult to any woman who's been called a hysteric, any woman who's had postpartum depression, any woman who has found herself no longer in control of her body or the way she makes money, um, which unfortunately has happened throughout millennia. I don't think you guys meant it in that way. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. But I do think you're better than that. And I think that was important to 
tell you how that came across. Thank you. I have to confess that I hadn't thought of all that. And I'm really grateful to this listener for speaking up. Thank you for your thoughts and hashtag Free Britney. Free Britney. Our Gentile of the Week is Julie Lithgott-Haynes. She's an author, speaker, and activist. And her latest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, offers practical strategies for living a more authentic adulthood in an age where so many 20 and 30-somethings feel that they are just adulting. Mark sat down with Julie to talk about being an adult. Julie Lithgott-Hames is an author and speaker and activist. She's published four books, including How to Raise an Adult. Her TED Talk based on that book's topics has reached over 5 million viewers. But we want to talk about her latest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which is available now. She's a former dean of freshmen at Stanford, so I want to call her Dean Lithgott-Hames. But she said just call her Julie. Julie, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Mark, thank you so much for having me. My students called me Dean Julie, never Dean Lithgott-Hames, but please just call me Julie. And my question for you is, am I the guest Jew or the guest Gentile? You're a Gentile, right? Well, yes, but my mother-in-law is an Orthodox Jew, so I kind of think <laughs> I have a little bit of a, you know, belonging on the other side of the line. At least I've tried for over 30 years to please my Orthodox Jewish mother-in-law. You might say I'm not who she expected her son to bring home. <laughs> so you definitely get a tribe card from us. Good. But here's the thing. We, we often joke on this show that every time we try to find a Gentile, it turns out their mother's mother was Jewish. I mean, we never... <laughs> <laughs> we never get there. There are no pure Gentiles. Being married to a Jew for 30 years, like you you earned the t-shirt, as we say. I have been to shul. I have sat on the female side of the line. Wow, you, you've earned the sweatshirt. Anyway, you've had this work that you've been doing for a long time, which it seems to me is about helping think about what it means to be a grown-up in society. What does it mean to arrive and to be a mature, fully-fledged adult human? You've written a book to grown-ups about it. Now you've written a book aimed at the younger people one of the things that you talk about that's so interesting is that sociologists talked about how there were five attributes of an adult, and we've kind of accepted those on faith. And then you argue that may not be the most useful way to think about it. So what is it that we think an adult is? Well, here's what I think an adult is. An adult is entering a stage of life between childhood and death, a set of really long decades, we hope, in which we will be well and in charge of ourselves. At the start of life, we are completely cared for in the body of another human and then on the body of other humans. We are held on the shoulder, held on the hip, held by the hand. And then at some point we come this, metaphorically speaking, sometimes literally speaking, freestanding adult. And at the end of our life, unless death comes suddenly, we're then caretaken once again by humans who are more hale and hearty than us. So adulting is this span of sweet years where we are in charge of ourselves. And it is terrifying, but it's also delicious to be making your own choices, fending for yourself, getting out of bed and saying, you know what? It's on me to make whatever I'm going to make happen, happen today. I'm going to feed myself, take care of myself, earn some money so I can pay the bills that support the things that matter to me. It's being off leash. It is continually asking yourself the question the late poet Mary Oliver asked, what am I going to do with this one wild and precious life? One would hope that that would be an organic process, that we would cease to need caretaking, 
sometime in our teenage years, presumably, we would grow into controlling our destiny and then we would do that until we no longer could. And yet, if it were that organic process, we'd have no need for your books. Exactly. Was it once organic and then it ceased to be? What's going on here? I think so, Mark. In the last 30 years, 40 years really now, we've had a parenting style underway called helicopter parenting where parents have so lovingly decided to micromanage the hell out of childhood. That certainly is one of the causes of why so many young adults are a little bewildered at the tasks prior generations could seemingly more easily do. And I am a helicopter parent. I have a 21-year-old, 19-year-old. I have overmanaged their lives. So the change has a lot to do with parenting, but also a lot to do with the 21st century and what it is asking and offering. Millennials have student loan debt that has far outpaced wages and salaries. So when their grandfather's like, what's wrong with you? Get a job. You know, it's like, granddad, yo, you didn't live in this economy. Things are different now. They are harder. Many young adults can't afford to rent a home or an apartment in the city in which they grew up. That's not their fault. That doesn't mean they're lazy. There are macroeconomic forces afoot that have really created quite a challenge. Add to that climate insecurity, climate catastrophe, a pandemic, systemic racialized violence. You know, the world is in an acute, urgent moment. And I think a lot of young adults are saying kind of like, yikes, maybe I want to retreat to the cocoon of childhood and be cared for. That sounds really rational to me, actually. And yet what we're trying to say is, look, you have what it takes you can do this well. The older folks ahead of you have not exactly created the easiest climate for you, but we believe that you can actually take the baton and run with it and shape the world in the image you want it to be. You know, this is me with that rooting for them voice in these pages. I'm all for that as a dad. The helicopter parenting, right? I grew up, I remember getting on my bicycle with no helmet and biking a couple miles away to my friend Derek's house. But I also remember that the milk cartons had the pictures of the abducted children on them. There was kind of this moment in there when all of a sudden parents were being scared into overparenting, or maybe that's just one piece of it. But tell me what happened sometime between the 80s and now where parents decided it was a good use of their time to micromanage the natural process of growing up. So beautifully articulated, Mark. Yeah, the 80s were a rough time when it came to scaring parents around stranger danger. And unfortunately, we've birthed an entire generation and now a second generation Gen Z around the notion, don't talk to strangers. Well, chapter seven of my new book is start talking to strangers. Humans are key to your survival. Don't talk to strangers is not a skill. It just makes kids afraid out in the world. We're supposed to teach them how to develop the instinct around who's the one creepy stranger versus the vast majority of humans. I know undergrad journalism students who think it's illegal to knock on people's doors if you don't know them. Boy, what a disservice. So there were actually four other things going on to undermine the freedoms of childhood. So Stranger Danger was born, and I will cite the work of the amazing nonprofit letgrow.org, founded by Lenore Skenazy and Peter Gray. And they will tell you about the statistical likelihood of being abducted and harmed by a stranger versus the statistical likelihood, which is much higher, of being harmed by a family member. A child is more likely to die in the passenger seat or the backseat of our car, driving them to soccer practice. We've got this overblown response to a horrible but very rare thing. In addition to that, which began in the mid-80s, the fear of it began, we had the self-esteem movement, ribbons and trophies and certificates and awards for anything that happens to a child. You know, you were on the soccer team, you drew a drawing, awesome. We tried to build self-esteem with all of this sort of empty reward. So parents were attending every moment of childhood to applaud it. 
that was happening alongside Stranger Danger. Then we had a book was published, A Nation at Risk, saying parents need to pay more attention to testing and teachers need to teach to the test and our kids have to improve academically. Play dates began in 1984. Until then, you would have biked down the street and looked for where were the bikes stacked because that's where the friends were. And that's what I did a decade before you. All of a sudden, parents were not just arranging play with other parents, like when will our children play, but then they were attending the play, watching over it nearby, intervening if the kids didn't know how to play, didn't know what to play with, got a little upset with each other. And all of these things conspired to undermine agency in childhood, resilience, which is coping when things go badly. We were basically micromanaging. We were basically keeping the kid in the car seat, turned backwards while we drove them through their life. And that has consequences. I love the work of Lenore Skenazi and Peter Gray. I love that whole literature about resiliency and letting kids be kids. And so do you. I'm imagining that gets you the way it gets me tagged as some sort of reactionary, crazy right-wing person. Because for some reason, the idea of like resilience and not giving everyone a trophy for everything because you want their self-esteem to come from an authentic place has become politicized as some sort of conservative up by the bootstraps thing. This is where the crazy right wing and the crazy left wing come together. Okay. This is actually a topic that is agnostic regarding politics. The conservatives are preaching self-reliance and pull yourself up by your imaginary bootstraps and nobody's here to help you. And the liberals are saying, you know, why aren't we letting this free spirit roam? Why aren't we letting this human become who their soul and spirit and the universe is telling them they ought to be? And so I love the fact that this is a topic that appeals to people across many places on the political spectrum. So the book of how to be an adult would be useful for young people, but it's really aimed at adults who are failing at being adults. Or I don't want to say failing. It's for kind of everyone who's saying, like, what does it mean to be a grown up? I always say to my students who are 18 or 19 and, and often scared of a lot of things, I say it is useful for you to reflect on the fact that that 50 or 75 years ago, most of you would have been married by now, and that in other countries, many of you would be in military service, right? That the space you're in where your biggest fear is which fraternity or sorority is going to select me is conditioned by American materialism and folkways, but there are times when you would have had to be fully grown up by now. And so it seems like people can have the skills at any point. It's not like they click in at 19 automatically. Right. First of all, this book is not a critique of anyone who is struggling with adulting. There's a lot of narrative out there critiquing them, particularly from the older set. What's wrong with those young people? Get a job. And I'm here to say, hold up, boomer. Okay, boomer. Things are different now. The old markers of adulthood no longer apply. They were in this order, finish your education, get a job, leave your parents home, marry and have children. And that was a highly gendered list. Women went from being the property of their dads to being the property of their husbands. It presumed everybody was heterosexual. It presumed the purpose of life was to procreate and that somehow one was inadequate if one wasn't acceding to those required tasks. Today's world is entirely different. The fact that so many young people are now co-creating living spaces is a beautiful thing. The 20-somethings who have potted up during the pandemic, like, I'm not going to go back home and live my childhood bedroom and be infantilized with my parents. I'm going to live in a pod of people my own age. And guess what? Take care of business. We're going to figure out who's doing the shopping, who's doing the cooking, who's doing these chores, who's taking care of that, right? We will look after each other. The concept of chosen fam, chosen family. I choose the people with whom I'm closest and we look after one another. I mean, that is in some ways, I think a very ancient and a very modern thing. You speak to the fact that required military service 
exists in some countries. Israel, Singapore, I think, requires it. Absolutely. Right? But not here. And I think in some ways, these rituals, like a bar and bat mitzvah, a quinceanera, a first communion, these are rituals emerging out of family, community, religion that help a young person know you're shifting to a new phase. Nobody would say that a 13-year-old is an adult in the sense of being able to just handle everything, but you are shifting to a new phase. I think a lot of the rituals of life, if you're not fortunate enough to have grown up with a bar bat mitzvah, you have maybe missed out on some of these rituals. If your military service is not required, you have missed out on the ritual of storming, forming, norming, and community. I think my point is we have to look for other ways for people to have ritualistic experiences that help them cross the line. I loved the book, but I do want to say the one thing that I wanted more of, you didn't do a lot of recalling people to the old traditions, right? You didn't say like, when you move to a new town, maybe find a house of worship or maybe find a nonprofit. People used to move to a town and join. You have such a wonderfully affirming and positive outlook of like, look, you're creating pods, you're doing new things, you're finding new ways. But it was never the case before in history that you, we expected that 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds could create it all anew for themselves. And it seems to me that I don't have a lot of hope for people if they are disdainful of religion, military, traditional family ways, patriotism, the old corporation, IBM. I mean, if you're sort of turning your back on all of it. Okay, wait a minute, Mark. Yes. If you're turning your back on all of it, what have you got? Those traditions uniformly rejected women, queer people, people of color, trans people, people who did not fit inside the box. And I'm here talking to you as a black biracial queer woman married to a cisgendered bisexual man, right? We were not contemplated, okay? The millennial generation and Gen Z that follows are the most ethnically and racially diverse population in America. So some of these old organizations need to retool their ways in order to be welcoming. But a lot of those organizations have reformed. I mean, Judaism has. Is that the argument that tradition is good, but these particular traditions are, are not redeemable? I mean, I guess I'm asking a larger meta question about can adulthood be created without some attachment to old ways? I would say that the old ways could benefit from some reform, just as we have an orthodoxy Agreed. and a conservative and a reform approach to a religion. We need to not say, oh, go join this old organization that may not look anything like you. There is value in saying, touch into that space, but also recognize if it is inherently rejecting of you, it is valuable to sit down with other folks who are your age and stage and say, you know, like, what, what benefits can we derive from that? What are the old lessons we can take? But let's create a new welcoming space that works for us. I think that makes adulthood harder. I mean, I'll give you an example. And I realize not everyone is religiously inclined, but, you know, that's the world I come from, right? So I'll pick that example. Mainline liberal Protestantism has done enormous amounts of reform in terms of being more gender egalitarian, more queer friendly, less militaristic, less allied with the military industrial complex, less reflexively patriotic, right? I think that like a lot of people, if they were religiously inclined, right? And I'm not going to ask people to graft a false spirituality onto their souls, but would come certainly the, the congregational and Presbyterian churches around where I am would be extraordinary places that might connect them in some ways to something they might have grown up with when they were 10 or something, right? Almost nobody goes to any of them. They don't even think to do it. But having to create all rituals and traditions anew is an enormously energy and time-consuming process. Like, it, it occurs to me that we've made adulthood harder by making it this kind of free-for-all, this grab bag of, like, do what you feel. I'm putting the onus on the institutions to evolve so that they are welcoming. If young people are rejecting traditional institutions, it's not because there's some tweet saying, don't go to church or don't go to shul. 
it's when I show up there, I don't see my values reflected there. I don't feel people are reaching out to me. You know, I'm not sure the older generation is doing a good job of saying to the young, like, welcome into our spaces and how can our spaces evolve in recognition of who you are? I think it goes both ways. I am 100% with you on the value of ritual. When I was dean of freshmen at Stanford, I worked on developing rituals to build a sense of belonging to this world-class university so that they didn't feel like just nameless, faceless numbers, because I know that ritual creates belonging, creates thriving. I totally appreciate the value of ritual. I just see a lot of young people creating what I think are valid rituals outside of those that are traditional. So people who are gathering up with friend groups on a regular basis for a hike, for a trip somewhere, for a book group, people are creating communities, opportunities these online for people to gather up and connect way across geographical distances. And neither a fan nor foe of technology, it is here and it has offered an opportunity for folks to gather in community in incredibly meaningful ways, particularly people who say have a diagnosis of a mental health difficulty or a learning difference or a disease. They're finding one another online and connecting and sharing tips and support and a sense of you are not alone and you're not an outsider or a pariah. So I think we have to be smart about where is ritual happening these days? Where are communities forming? I take that point and I thank you for that. One of the items in your study guide that accompanies the book and that's on your website, julielithcotthames.com, is in terms of adulting, one of the goals is stop pleasing others. That does strike me as a generational characteristic. And, and of course, this was something that people were writing about, you know, with the inner directed versus other directed, you know, 50 years ago, but it seems to have reached an apex, right, of the need to please. I don't think it's generational. I think it's eternal and I'm rooting for this generation to break that generational cycle of harm. Getting the noise of mom, dad, bubby, grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, peers, society, media, get the noise out of your heads. You are not here to live the life they imagined. If they decide to disown you because you've chosen the wrong job, the wrong school, or the wrong person to fall in love with, to hell with them. This is your one life. And I'm rooting for readers to find that inner voice that knows this is what I'm good at. This is what I love. This is where I feel a deep abiding sense of belonging, go in that direction and the meaningful, rewarding life you seek will come. I couldn't agree more. I often, I've had to talk as a college teacher myself to people's moms and dads and say, it's okay that your kid wants to be an artist or a writer. You know, they will say, can you tell my mom it's okay that I'm not going to med school? Julie, now, although you've wandered through the desert as an ally of the Jews for several decades of marriage, you probably don't have any questions left. But since you have here a certified Jewish podcasting expert, do you have any questions about this weird thing we call Judaism that I can answer for you as our Gentile of the Week? Oh, my gosh. Oi, I should say. (laughs) Um, These times are difficult. I feel tremendous solidarity as an African-American woman with my Jewish brothers and sisters around the hate, the resurgence of hate in this country and elsewhere. Hate for Jews, hate for Blacks, hate for Asians. There's a whole lot of hate on the rise and they tend to have guns. And so I think I would ask, this isn't to tell me about Judaism, but tell me what the Jewish diaspora is feeling today. What could you use by way of better allyship? We could use more people who understand that we are scared as well that three years ago, 2018, saw the greatest anti-Semitic slaughter on American soil ever, 11 people killed, not too distant in time from the slaughter at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. And that although the Jewish diaspora in America is largely Ashkenazi and largely white passing and white identifying, many people are terrified. And the fear is real and it's not to be mocked or dismissed. And that when Jews 
want to speak up in context of their own particularity and speak from their own particular experience, that they have to be honored as people who also have a particular ethnic experience that counts, even if some of them are blonde and don't get pulled over by the cops. Absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. Let's not overlook the fact that we happen to be taping this on Holocaust Remembrance Day. I feel a deep connection to the Jewish community, to the diaspora, to the history, not just because I've married into the tribe, but because I'm a human who has walked this world as a light-skinned Black person. So I am not white passing, but I have a lot of privilege that comes from lightness, from having a white mother, a white husband. And so I know not to appropriate the experience of darker-skinned people, poorer people, trans people, people who've had it worse. And yet I'm also able to say, I too have been on the receiving end of really shitty things. So we have this in common. I've tried to raise my kids to appreciate you are descended from some of the most reviled people on the planet. Be proud of your ancestors on both sides. You come from people who survived. Thank you. Amen. Selah, as we say in synagogue. You know, and of course, one of my podcast hosts, Liel, who grew up in Israel, is always very quick to point out that Israel is about 50% non-Ashkenazi at this point. And the immigrant experience and the, the culture there is increasingly... African Jewish, it's increasingly Sephardic Jewish. And, you know, these are the things we all have to be attuned to in a global world. But look, kids in all of these cultures need your book, need your turn, how to be an adult. Millennials need them. Adults need them. Adults of any age need them, I think, because it has a lot of important lessons. We didn't even talk about all the like talkless stuff, as we say, about like money management, which honestly is like the stuff that like, who doesn't need that, right? I loved that chapter. You know, there's a woman at the end of the book who lives in Israel, who is an Orthodox Jew, who tells the story of how she knew she was called by God, the universe, and everybody, as I like to say, to try to serve humans through promulgating kindness. Orly Waba is one of my 31 people interviewed in this book. I've tried to make this book as inclusive as possible of people across various ethnic, religious, socioeconomic ability levels, neurodiversity, all of it, because I'm hoping every reader at some point will say, man, she had me in mind when she wrote this thing. Writing inclusive books is one of my priorities as a nonfiction writer. And so I hope that readers really feel seen or really feel that the intention was there. Julie Lithcott-Hames, the book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Her website is julielithcotthames.com. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. I'm delighted to have been your Gentile of the Week. I'm honored this was fun. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate you. My Mazel Tov this week is a series of happy birthdays to great people born on the day that this podcast drops, April 22nd. So Jack Nicholson is turning, gosh, he's turning 84. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. The ghost of Lenin blowing out candles in the sky. J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the key inventors of the atomic bomb and the person whom I'm asked if I'm related to more often than any other human being in the world, including the people I'm actually related to. He would be turning 117. Pete Francis. Hampton, who is still showing us the way after all these years, turning 71. And a Parisian saloniste, Madame de Stael, would be turning 255 if she were alive. So happy birthday to all of you. Also, when we do live shows, we the audience gets to give their own Mazel Tov. So why don't people just like start writing in with your Mazel Tovs to unorthodoxatabletmag.com and we'll, we'll give them. I mean, I feel like it's like an embarrassment of Mazel Tovs that I give and I want to give some on your behalf as well. The collective noun for Mazel Tovs, an embarrassment of Mazel Embarrassment. <laughs> a nachis of Mazel Tovs. And another Mazel Tov to all of those who wrote to me to say that there are still people out there saying that they shep nachis. And I will concede that I was wrong. I do want to make the point to their listeners that when I make these sort of grandiose statements, like nobody says Shep Nachis in the entire <laughs> world, I'm not actually being literal. It's actually hyperbole. 
I'm kidding. But look, the, the Shep Nachas thing is very difficult for me because how is it that I work in the duosphere, that I'm literally a professional converser with other Jews? I've talked to thousands of you in my career and nobody has ever used the term Shep Nachas in my presence. Well, maybe, Mark, no one is Shepping Nachas for you, which makes me feel sad. <laughs> it's so sad. And especially now, no one's gonna. Every time you make one of these statements, people go on Facebook and light up like, does Mark even know Jews? <laughs> like, it's kind of irate outrage. I love it. Right. Like I am actually empirically aware that I do not have universal Jew knowledge. And sometimes I say these things anyway. And I love it when people take me so literally. Josh, what was it you said that the Mark doesn't know what he's talking about thread is your favorite kind of thread on Facebook? When people come on to angrily correct you about stuff, it is the greatest moment in all of the Facebook because they're so <laughs> mad. And it's like, you're so wrong and so confident. It doesn't bother you, which is good because it doesn't hurt your feelings. So I know you're not going to be upset. Right. And it's like, it's like a recurring thing. It's like an evergreen. It's like a Mad Libs, right? Like, exactly. I can't believe Mark doesn't know about noun <laughs> that he said <laughs> adjective like it's just incredible mark i don't want to add insult to injury here and leo's gonna Please kill me for bringing add. this up there's another thread on Facebook where people are just talking about how hot they think Liel is. Oh, you know. <laughs> and Simon Doonan, off air, famously said, I don't know if we've ever revealed this, but he he thinks that Liel has better hair than I do. I mean, it's he thinks Liel's better dressed and has better hair. I mean, look, I, it's okay. Part of my job, I am the punching bag. I understand. <laughs> and that's okay. I'm happy to be the straight man and the punching bag. It's hard It's hard to be the dad. It, right. It's hard to be the dad. That's what you do. You, you take the abuse and you, and you understand that it's love. But that said... By the way, it's hard to be the dad is... Maybe the next line that gets you a lot of shit on Facebook. <laughs> Does Mark even know any moms? I just want to say that when I say things like Jews don't like Drake's cakes, I don't actually mean that no Jew in the world likes Drake's cakes. You're ruining the magic, though. It doesn't matter. I'll still get I'll, I'll still get the mail. Is this show still going on? Are we done? Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Remember to call us with your conversion stories of 60 seconds or fewer. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We are going to come to you live again. Probably it's time to start booking us now. Get in there early. Maybe there'll be a discount or something. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K. Cross at tabletmag.com. You'll want to wear swag to that show that you come to. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarf Rebinator. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our tablet fellow is Ellie Blyer. And what a fellow he is. What a jolly good fellow. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Sisterhood president and indeed chief buyer for the Sisterhood gift shop is Rebecca Heidewitz. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Mark Kula of Congregation Beth Sholem in Bozeman, Montana. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios, but they won't be scattered forever. Shalom, friends. I have a neighbor who's who's a nice guy with a nice dog, nice single guy with a nice single dog, and his license plate is like B I seven C O one N. It's like Bitcoin. What is he signaling to the world that he's given up? <laughs> that he got. I mean, I would like not publicize the fact that I'm into like a new type of cryptocurrency and I may have recently made a lot of money in it. It's a weird thing, right? <laughs> it's a weird thing to publicize to the world. He's not publicizing anything to the world. It's just literally his password, which he would otherwise forget. Right. And then not be able to retrieve his Bitcoin.